I'm Will Hansen and welcome to the Experts in the Room podcast, brought to you by Extreme Push. In this series, we chat to some of the leading minds working in the customer experience, retention and data space in some of the most competitive and fastest growing industries in the world. In this episode, e-commerce, the hard truth. I spoke with Isaiah Bollinger, founder of Trellis Agency and GrowthSpark, and one of the leading lights in B2B e-commerce in the US. Isaiah is a veteran podcaster, and we chat about everything from building partnerships and running an agency, to the do's and don'ts for prospective brands entering both the direct-to-consumer space as well as the B2B space. If you're anyway interested in e-commerce, this is the episode for you. Isaiah um, Bollinger, co-founder and CEO of Trellis Full Service Marketing Agency, one of the best going uh, in the e-commerce business in the States. Um, also hugely important to have you on our podcast today um, as a co-host of a podcast, The Hard Truth About B2B E-commerce. Great to have you t- here today with us um, on Experts in the Room, Isaiah. So yeah, really excited to chat to you today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It's nice to be on a podcast and not have to worry about like recording and publishing and all I have to do is just show up, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's 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 the different hat. It's perfect for you today. It's the full relaxation mode. You get to sprout your wisdom without having to uh, interrupt or anything. Yeah, the dream is that I get invited to enough of these that that's all our marketing and all I have to do is just like show up and that, you know. <laughs> yeah, who knows? It could be the day job soon enough. You could be the new, the new Rogan or something getting around. That's how I've pitched it internally to be able to run the show. So... <laughs> Uh, maybe not down that route, but yeah, great, great to have you here with us. Um, uh, really, it, it'd be awesome to get a bit of um, bit of background about you um, for, for everyone uh, that's listening to the show today. Um, definitely get on and follow Azire on um, LinkedIn. You're one of the best people that I follow on LinkedIn for all the tidbits that you throw up uh, in and around um, e-commerce and, and retail and everything to do with um, digital and online marketing. So it'd be really cool to just get an understanding about your agency um, and what you're doing at the moment. And then and then I guess we're going to get deep into the nuts and bolts of kind of some of the best practice in and around what brands should be doing and what they should be thinking about heading into 2023 um, in the online world um, for, for digital marketing and e-commerce. So, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't work for very long after school. I kind of just knew I wanted to do my own thing. People always ask me, like, oh, how did you... Like, you know, as if I had like some grand plan and genius, you know, strategy to start. But really, it was just kind of like knowing I wanted to do my own thing and um, working for some other people kind of made me realize what I felt like they were doing wrong. And, and and I saw an opportunity to try something and do something a little different on my own that I thought could be could be better. It was definitely uh, harder than I thought <laughs> getting yeah. getting going and um I really didn't have a lot of experience. It was really just kind of like, I kind of bet on myself to learn. I'm kind of a fast learner. And one of the reasons I was never a fan of schools, I always felt it kind of like it it went at one pace and I would go at my own pace in the real world. So that was like, well, this is my chance to kind of go at my own pace, right? When I'm, I don't have anyone to tell me what to do, right? I can just do what I think is the the best way forward. So it was a lot of trial and error and and kind of fell. I I didn't even actually start in e-commerce. I started in SEO. So I started in marketing, kind of broadly digital marketing. And keep in mind, back in like 2011, 2012, it was like, you know, most of the small businesses I was talking to, they had like barely anything, right? Like, you know, maybe some of them would have an e-commerce site, but that was pretty rare. And if they did, it was very, you know, minimal. So you're talking like very minimal stuff that people had. 
Um, so I kind of realized quickly that what they needed was actually more infrastructure because you can't really do SEO without some sort of content infrastructure. And, and I realized e-commerce was a good way to do that. And so, you know, long story short, we kind of, you know, realized that e-commerce was, was a better focus than more of a broad focus. And we built up around Magento. We still do Magento today. It's now owned by Adobe um, for people that are more like in the weeds. Um, for a while, it was kind of the leading platform, uh, especially in those early days in like 2011, 2012, 2013. Um, and then, you know, over time, we saw Shopify really gain traction. So we picked that up as, as an offering. We actually merged slash acquired a small Shopify agency. So their owner became one of our owners. Um, which kind of helped us accelerate the Shopify um, positioning. And then we picked up Big Commerce, uh, which I'm happy to talk about. We, we were really bullish on them. And we felt like they were kind of filling in a gap as Magento got acquired by Adobe. They became, they felt like there was this kind of this opening and, and Big Commerce sort of kind of felt, filled that a little bit, kind of almost like what Magento used to be. And then we do what we call headless uh, commerce. Uh, we have a kind of like a headless practice. It's, I don't know if you saw some of my posts. There's a lot of buzzwords and confusion. Yeah. I'm not a fan of buzzwords. I think one of them was compostable uh, posts. Whether it's headless, composable, that whole kind of like newer technology uh, way of doing e-commerce, we do that as well. So those are kind of the four buckets. Uh, We are kind of exploring a couple other platforms, but there's only so much we can do. It's already a lot to do those four. there's some overlap between the four and we work as well as we can to kind of like leverage the advantages of the overlap, but we also have to have expertise in each different area. And then yeah. the biggest thing that we've been doing in the last few years and probably one of the most challenging things is to become more full service. So one of the things we realized was trying to do everything well was, was really hard. So in the beginning, we, were, we really doubled down on just being the technical experts um and and focusing on that over time we kind of got better at the creative um and even creative is this whole world that you kind of uncover over time where there's like there's u- user experience there's uh branding there's copywriting like you can you, creative can get start to get really broad right like ad creative for facebook is very different than yeah. designing a website right and the skill sets they're not exactly one for one and the, there's there's learnings that we had to go through there and then the marketing you know I had the SEO background. I had some marketing background, but building out the marketing organization around paid ads, you know, Google ads, Facebook, all that kind of stuff um, really took, uh, took a while to kind of like bring all this stuff together and become more full service. So it's still an ongoing, you know, challenge to, to be good at all these things. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I can imagine. And then, so, so where I'd like to drill down today is, Talking about um, like the market as it's gone from 2022 and as we head into 2023, I think like you've talked about, like it's so weird to think back to the fact that 2011, 2010, like you're talking to brands that, you know, no, no e-commerce, no online capability at all and how much it's evolved in 10 years. And we forget that. Yeah. People, especially like manufacturers, they were scared to sell on their website, right? Because they didn't want to like upset their, you know, their retailers and it was still so new people just didn't really understand it that well you know that's why seo became kind of like a buzzword like oh yeah. get on google right and you had these kind of like simple buzzwords that would kind of move the needle so sometimes you have to talk people about 
something like SEO, but then by thinking about it, it's like, well, really an e-commerce site is a good way to do SEO because you get product data on the website and then Google finds all that. Yeah. And it's better than just having a static page, you know? So, Yeah. And it's just amazing how much it's like, you're talking about it like it's like the stone age um, back then. It's only 10 years ago and, and the acceleration. Really is, seen yeah. Even in, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like you see, you see the, the acceleration we've even had in two, three years. Um, I found it interesting that it's it's still only, most retailers are still only doing about 20% online as sales. As, I mean, as yeah, many thing. are so, doing 5 10%, especially when you get into like distribution and manufacturing. And yeah. we deal with a lot of B2B. So some of those companies are at 0% still, which is like, you know. <laughs> and, and how do you go about as an agency, and, and you in particular being an expert in the field, like if you're talking to brands that are, you know, either entering it as zero percent, whether they're mature or they're startup or whatnot, like what what are the tips that you guys are giving them, um, and that you're going to give for free on the podcast here today about yeah, what they should so, be doing when they're approaching it? Yeah, another challenge that we ran into, and this is partly our own problem, not necessarily like the client's problem, but I think it it, it definitely will help you understand the dichotomy of that the the level. So. As we started to do bigger projects, you know, the process became more and more mature because, you know, when you're doing these bigger projects, you need more people, you need more process. Things can go off the rails very quickly on a larger project. Um, and what we realized was that all of a sudden that process wasn't really a good fit for people that were newer to e-commerce or more early stage, right? If they had a smaller Shopify website, they didn't need all that. <laughs> yeah. So we actually have almost kind of like created two different companies within our company. Um, one of the companies we acquired was called GrowSpark and we kept the name. We kind of like the name and we've been using that name to kind of describe and brand our small business offering. Um, and what we're realizing with the, and it doesn't actually necessarily mean that they're small business. What we're realizing for the people that fit into the GrowSpark model, which I guess you could describe as people that are more new to e-commerce. So this could be, you know, a huge company that maybe just doesn't do e-commerce or it could just be a small company. Maybe they do a few million bucks on e-commerce. They just don't need the Trellis enterprise process that works for, yep. you know, these big three, four, 500K projects that we do. Um, and so what we're seeing resonate a lot with them is really like keeping some of the foundational elements very simple. Like it's, we honestly don't do that much development for these clients. So a lot of it is just configurating, like almost convincing them to stay within the box of Shopify. Like, yep. look, you don't need to like build this custom website, you know, Shopify, it's mainly Shopify, right? But we're actually starting to do more with big commerce in this space. Let's call it Shopify and big commerce, but those two platforms between the two can cover a pretty wide range of use cases. And it's like, look, fit into those, fit into the apps, even if they need an integration, let's find an app for the integration. So we're not custom integrating basically like trying to remove as much custom work as possible. And it ends up being mostly about creative and marketing because when you're early stage, that's what you need, right? You need content, you need marketing, you need, you know, awareness. And um, a lot of the core technology is good enough or if you can just kind of live with it, Maybe maybe simplify certain things that you're doing, not trying to overcomplicate. Because until you're getting to a few million bucks, you really that's where you know you have to build some sort of awareness. No one knows who you are. You know. Yeah. 
I, I, I actually, that it's probably probably a good segue into into a post that you put up not long ago about Shopify rising, raising their prices at the moment, and people complaining about it should probably maybe yeah, well, have a, have a little think about whether they're in the right game or not. Um, yeah, I think people just really underestimate. It's like, okay, forty dollars a month is your problem. It's like that's not your problem. Your problem is going to be shipping costs, marketing, like the manpower just to do marketing is is pretty extraordinary that people underestimate. You know, and, and how do you so so how much do you think that these these platforms, big big commerce and and Shopify, like that they've opened this market up to to you know to to small businesses to and even to enterprise businesses to do things simply that they hadn't thought about online like it, it seems like that yeah i think it's great i mean yeah first of all i think you know people complaining about these 40 50 dollar a month subscriptions like i think it's ridiculous right i mean try opening a store right like <laughs> yeah a bricks and mortar store yeah, you know, tens of thousands of dollars just to like even have a reasonable store, you know, rent and all the things that go into yeah. opening up a store. So I think they've really opened up the door for people. Um, but the problem is, I think that's that's not the hard part, right? Like you can set up a Shopify site or a big commerce site very easily. The hard part is having good content, building brand awareness, building a brand that resonates you know, figuring out what your products are. Do you make the product? Do you, you know, I think a lot of people just think, oh, like, drop, you know, I'll just drop, drop ship. It's like, <laughs> okay, well, what is your value prop if you're just drop shipping? Like, can, if anyone can do that, it's that easy. Like, and you don't own the products. Are you, is it cheaper? Do they trust you? Why should I buy from you? Is it going to get there quickly? You don't even control the shipping and the logistics. What happens if something goes wrong? I don't get my order. You know, I don't think people really think enough about the value prop and why they would buy from you versus the bajillion other options. So I think a lot of people, they're probably better off just selling on Amazon. Um, you know, like if you can't sell it on Amazon, then how are you? Like I always say, it's like if you can't sell it on Amazon, how are you going to sell it on your own website? You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Um, and I think that's yeah, it's it's funny across the whole industry about the winners and losers as we particularly as as you're potentially heading into tougher financial times on on about what's happening and particularly against the the growth of online during COVID and everything. So um, obviously a bit of a balancing there within the market, I think, for obviously the brands that are operating in the market, but the tech guys that are providing into the market too that we're seeing. So yeah, it's definitely an interesting piece. But I do love that the technology is, I do think if you're savvy and you're smart and you take the time to really get good at this stuff, you can do a lot with very little yeah. technology costs. Um, but the costs eventually add up in general. But usually what is not going to be the problem is the software, the licensing cost of Shopify. That's not going to be your problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's going to be the least of your problems. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> And and so talk to me about um, maybe a bit of 2022 in review for you guys. I'd love to I'd love to hear about some of the particularly good things that you think either you guys did at Trellis or, or things that you've seen in the e-commerce world that were really successful from probably like that branding point of market fit, um, the idea of getting across that brand and then really nailing it from a technology perspective and that experience that the users are or the users or the customers at the end are getting. Like, do you have any good examples of things where you've gone, geez, we did a really good job with that because it's, because it's worked. It's perfect market. Uh, it's perfect well, product. I'll tell you some very specific, I mean, some things are complicated, right? Because it depends on the brand yeah. and their positioning. And um, so there's definitely some, some sites that went live and, and had like a pretty good, 
good uh, lift just from our work. And I think one thing I, we launched 40 sites last year, brand wow. new, like new projects. So that's a lot. That was definitely our record by far. It might've been like 39. It was close to 40. And then we manage, you know, hundreds of other sites uh, that to be clear though, that we have some clients that have a hundred sites, right? So yeah. it's not like we manage hundreds of clients at the same time. Um, we typically have about 60 to 70 active clients. There's only so many our project managers can handle. Like, it becomes kind of unwieldy if a project manager has like 50 accounts. It's just yeah. we figured out the math. Of. So, but but we in, technically we manage hundreds of sites. We launched 40 brand new sites. Some of those were relatively small Shopify sites. Some of those were huge, you know, much larger projects that are way, well into the seven or six figures, almost in the seven figures. Um, but um, it, it definitely, I think it's all over the place in terms of results. So I think one thing it's definitely learned is that like, it's not like launching good code and a better user experience like isn't enough on its own, right? So in some cases we saw a major lift in sales. In some cases they had a downward trend for the last three years or two years. And like, we might've seen improvements from our work but it's not enough to offset other market forces. So I think the biggest thing that 2022 taught me is like between the like the down like you could I almost consider it recession like whatever like I don't know official government numbers doesn't feel like we're in like the the reality of whatever they're saying like oh it was like you know three percent like everyone I talk to doesn't feel like we're in like a normal growth you know mode yeah. so a lot of people I think are feeling the the negative effects of the economy and especially also with e-commerce because you saw like the huge 2020 bump. And then it's like things are kind of back to normal and you can't just like, so some of those companies, like they didn't do anything and they just saw a bump. And then it's like, you can't just, they, they think that like little things will have those same effects. Right. Um, so I think if anything, what 2022 taught me is that a lot of the digital tactics are really effective, but only if you have a good business model to begin with. So what, what I mean by that is like, um, the companies that had strong products, strong pricing, strong brands, things like email had a huge impact. So we'd come in and within 90 days, we could improve their email, abandoned carts, like do better segmentation, you know, really just like kind of fine tune their email programs, mostly around automation. So a lot of company, most companies we look at, they've barely done anything for email automation. Yeah. Like they set up some basic add to cart flow, like a couple basic automations, but it's really not very well thought through. And they're really like missing out on email potential. Um, so we saw huge lifts in that. Um, but it's an example of like, that lift was only as strong as the brand was, right? So I guess the to the, the, the point I'm making is that we could do everything really well, right? Fix our digital ads, you know, fix, but there comes a certain point where like, if all the tactics aren't work or like are still not bringing enough results, you have a fundamental like brand strategy issue that like you need to go down to the ground floor and be like, okay, like why am I buying from this company? Yeah. And like, is that story strong enough? Because there's just so many options in the market for pretty much almost everything you can imagine. Right. Unless you're some amazing new product, which is pretty rare, you know? Yeah. And that, uh, this is actually a complete shift away because in my day job, I, I sit within a, 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 a sales function um, at a technology platform. When you're, when you're understanding and learning these brand concepts, and this is me talking to you as a CEO here, um, 
of an agency. How how are you guys going about making sure that your clients are a match to what you're going to be able to achieve for them? Um, That's it. And doing that, um, and obviously then looking at partnerships moving forward and stuff like that. I, I just think that that might be a nice little shift in there. Yeah, I mean that almost kind of exactly tags on to this question, right? Because a lot of people we t- we talk to a lot of people. We don't obviously work with everyone we talk to. We probably only work with maybe one in ten or one in eight, seven, you know, maybe fifteen percent of the people we talk to we work with. And so one thing that I always try to make sure is like, are we going to get results for this person, right? And to your point, is it, sometimes it's about expectations, right? If we feel like they have some major fundamental, you know, brand and business issues. Are we even going to be able to solve that? Right. Like, cause there's a certain point where like, you can't just like outsource all your problems, right? Like, yeah, we can make your logo look nicer. We can do some brand strategy work, but sometimes also people are resistant to that. They don't think they have a brand strategy issue when, when we think they do. And that's when I usually try tread very cautiously because if I think they have a brand strategy, brand issue, and just like product market fit issue, and they don't, and they're just thinking, oh, we're going to put some paint on the website to make it look nicer, and that's going to fix our problems, then we're probably not going to get them results, right? And and then we're just going to get fired eventually. So why? Like, we don't want to take on a short-term project that we know, like, isn't going to get results, or we're just going to inevitably get fired after three, six months. Like, we're trying to keep customers. Our goal is to keep customers forever. But that's obviously not, you know, it's not going to always be the case. But um, so I, I usually look for two things: either they have good product market fit, and they're like there's some foundation. And I find that honestly, the B two B companies are are the best because generally the B two B companies their their competition is is very weak. Like the branding and the marketing in B two B is so bad, <laughs> honestly, that just like doing the basics generally has a massive impact. So like when we do Google ads accounts for some of our B2B customers, we'll literally get 10 to 15 times returns. Like, so for every dollar they spend on Google, they might get $15 in revenue. Like that'll never happen for like our skincare clients. Like not never, but they they almost never, right? Like with skincare, it's like the competition is just insane, right? Like you got like Kylie Jenner and like every celebrity in the world. (laughs) Selling skincare. the ads are so saturated with like, if uh, you know, I'm trying to talk, talk to this company where they sell dehumidifiers, right? Humidifiers, right? Like I bet I can get a higher return if they, but so that's B2B is like an example where the foundation is usually really strong, but the, the, the marketing isn't. And that's where we can fit. We can, we can facelift the mark. I call it, I think facelift is a good analogy because they already have the foundation and we're just like kind of elevating everything else. Or if they don't have all of that, they're just willing to be, to listen and like be open to ideas. And they're, they're, they're not like headstrong about thinking they know what the problem is when really they need like a, more, a deeper exploration, exploration. So those are kind of the two things. Does that make sense? Like basically they have to be very open yeah, no, I, I, or, or have yeah, the foundation, I, you know. I think that's massively um, relevant. And I, th- I think it's hugely relevant when you look at it from the other side. And if you sit as a marketing manager or a CRM manager or, or whatever it might be, you might be, um, you know, owning a function or a product within, within your business. And you've been tasked with going and finding partners. It works that way too. And understanding what partners are out there. So it could be your backend e-commerce platform. Um, what are you, what are you going to get in as far as support? What are you going to get 
from the technology as well and start to really dig down into that. I find that brands that do that due diligence as well, there will be someone out there that's the right partner for them. Um, so it works on that fit as well to be able to pick partners. And I'm sure you guys are the same when you're looking at the technology partners that you want to work with as an agency um, that are going to help advance your offering to your clients as well. Yeah, I want to get into the tech partnerships a little bit. Before, I just want to give one more story as an example. So just to drive that point home, just so people can understand, when I say open-mindedness, I'll give you an example. I'll give you a very specific example. So we're working with a, uh, we're not working, we're, we're deep into the process with this company that normally like, if the conversation went different, I would have just been like, look, like, let's move on. Let's not waste our time because I don't think this is going to work out. But the guy was, was willing to listen. So he came to us specifically with his ideas, which were more like, oh, conversion rate optimization, SEO. He had his idea of what he thinks he needed. But when I start asking questions, I find out the business does about, you know, $5 million total, but only about $500,000 online. So going back to your point, so only 10% online, not 20%. And he's in an industry that should be at least 20%, if not 30%. And, but he's been around for a long enough time. Um, and when you're someone that, when you're still that small, conversion rate optimization is usually not going to be that effective um, because you just don't have that much volume, right? So I started digging in and I, I, it was very clear to me that emails and SMS was going to have his biggest impact. So his email and SMS revenue is almost zero, but he has, you know, a ton of historical customers, right? So I'm like, well, if we just try and, you know, sell to those historical customers, we can get some pretty fast results. But he, and he was open to that. He was like, all right, I hear what you're saying. Like we talked about all the options, all the things we could do. And when we brought it back to the things that we thought made the most sense, it was different than what he came to us for. But he was open to that because he saw that we were trying to actually help him and get him results relatively quickly versus doing what maybe he asked us to do, which might not have gotten him results. Right. And so I was like, okay, he's open. I think we can work with this guy and get results. Whereas if he's like, no, 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 I just want this one thing and we know it's not going to get results. It's like, why even take on that account? You know? And I, I think that speaks to your experience in and around the data that sits behind your results, right? We talk about results and, and driving certainty to to clients and customers um, in this space. Being data-driven and being able to show that is the most important thing. Like, sure, some things might not work out as you've exactly mapped out against a, against a spreadsheet, but when you've got proof in the pudding and the amount of clients that you guys have, I imagine that data set for you guys is so valuable to be able to go in and say, no, no, you don't have an optimization problem. You've got an email problem. We can see that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it. everyone has an optimization problem to some extent, right? Which is the bigger problem. That's what people don't realize is like, you have a hundred problems. I have a hundred problems, but you need to figure out what is the biggest problem that you can solve right now. And that's what I think uh, people just don't, they don't know what they don't know, right? But but yeah, I want to, I think the tech partnerships is important because um, I think a lot of our value prop is our tech partnerships. And a lot of people just don't understand that. They don't understand how much like thought and effort goes into that. Um, I mean, we, we can't, we've talked to hundreds and hundreds of tech partnerships. We get, you know, people constantly reach out to us, right? And we have to be honestly fairly conservative with our time because if we, we just don't have time to deal with all of them, like we just, it wouldn't be possible, right? We would never, we would never get anything done. So the things that we've looked for are one, just like, are they unique in the market enough where they matter? Right. Like, 
there's just too many options in the market. So like if they're not the market leader, they need to be unique. So they they're either need to be like a market leader, like a Shopify or BigCommerce. So, you know, in the e-com industry, you have certain market leaders that we gravitate towards. And I think those are, well, in some ways, somewhat obvious, but there's actually a downside to those because the problem with the market leaders is they get saturated with partners. So we've realized that if you can't be high enough up in their partner program, then it's actually not necessarily good to partner with a market leader because you're not going to get any attention and there's not really a real partnership. Like, I think a lot of people don't realize that, like, if you're not high up in some of these partner programs, like you're barely even really a partner. Like, yeah, technically you're a partner on paper, but like there's really not much of a real partnership going on. There's very little like, uh, yeah, sorry. I think, you know, you know what I'm saying by that, right? Yeah, I do. I do. And it's funny. And it's not necessarily driven by revenue either. It's about the openness of both partners to be willing to work with each other uh, in an open way too, I think is really important and understanding that and how much of it can be done without too much heavy lifting um, as well and having open open dialogues, open APIs from a technical perspective as well to be able to kind of integrate and, and have the heavy lifting on either side of the, the partnership that, that that it matters for. I think that's really important too. You see so many closed systems that are deliberately set up not to talk to other systems, um, which I think is is not the approach heading into the heading into the next decade, I don't think. No, definitely not. I mean, I think that the only companies really getting away with that, to be honest, are just the legacy big Tech companies, and I think they know that that's not the way at this point, but they just have so much legacy baggage and they move so slow in some ways that I don't think it's simple for them to just kind of like completely modernize everything that they're doing. So um, I think though, folks like Microsoft are doing a fairly good job of that. If you look at some of the stuff they're doing with their APIs and their tech, like you can you can tell that it's way more open than it used to be, you know, five ten years ago. Um, but going back to the tech partnerships. Like, I think that there's a few approaches we look at, right? Like if it's a market leader, of course, like it's great to be a partner of a market leader because in theory they have tons of business. But what people don't realize is they're probably giving that business to a hundred other partners. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. if you're not one of those hundred partners or top 50 or top 10, it's like, is it worth the attention? So we really want to make sure we can fit into the partner program in a way that's meaningful. Um, and then we also look for people that are maybe not market leaders today, but we think they might be a market leader tomorrow. So one of those is big, big commerce. We took a bet on big commerce for a while. Honestly, we just didn't see the light. We we're like, you know, we couldn't really figure out where they fit in. But I think once we realized that Adobe was going up market, they were or Magento, they, were, they had a lot of problems. A lot of these enterprise platforms, to your point, going back to that, they just, they have a lot of legacy issues, right? Open, whatever it is. And they were kind of like abandoning a lot of the market. We just saw so much unhappiness within the partner program and, and customers. And then you have Shopify, right? Who's crushing it. Great company. But they they have their own challenges when it came to enterprise and, and scalability. And we felt like big commerce was actually doing a lot of smart things to like kind of fit in the middle there. So we put made a bet with them. And part of that bet was that they didn't have as saturated of a partner program. So we felt like we could become their number one partner much faster than like the other partnerships that have many more partners. Right. And then in some cases I'll get like, I'll give you smaller examples. You know, there's, you know, apps like you'll have like, you know, the reviews app, right. I'm sure you've heard of the reviews app and there's a ton of those reviews companies. So there's a couple that are market leaders, but you can start to see fairly quickly in our space that like 
some of the newer ones are gaining ground on the older ones. And then you start to realize like, hey, maybe we make a bet on the one that we think is going to overtake the older one. Plus, they're not as saturated of a partner market. So another good example is Gorgeous. I don't know if you, you're familiar with Gorgeous. I think they've just no, I don't know those they've done an amazing job in like customer support. And Zendesk was the leader, right? I think most people have heard of Zendesk. Um, but Zendesk, uh, once again, is a good example of like kind of a saturated partner program, you know, but gorgeous, you know, was folk, we just saw an opportunity with them to kind of like move up the ladder and they, they're starting to beat Zendesk in, in e-commerce. Not, they're probably still smaller in total support, but it, specifically e-commerce, they're like actually, I think, beating Zendesk now. So we've seen the shifts, I would say from our perspective that the tech partnership shifts take about three to five years from what we've seen. So like in that five years, you could go from a kind of like a little bit of a fledgling, you know, barely competitor to literally like almost overtaking a leader. That's how fast it can happen. That's maybe on the aggressive side, but it can, it can happen in three to five years. No, I, I, th I think that's probably, probably spot on. Like it, it, as we say, it moves so quickly. Like you think about the, the technology, um, four or five years ago that was dominating in, in whatever part of the part of online that you want to look at, whether it's top of funnel or, you know, um, backend, whatever, um, things change so quickly. A lot of people don't realize that when we're making these tech partnerships, like we're actually really doing the due diligence to be like, yeah. what are the bets that we think are going to be the right bets in three to five years, not right now. So that yeah. that investment we make with the partners isn't just like about now. It's like, it's going to grow over time and, Hopefully together we both grow and be in a better spot. Yeah, that's probably a good segue there, as I into into having a look at what's coming down the pipe in twenty twenty three. I think um, I wouldn't mind doing this from two perspectives. Like obviously from from your perspective as an agency and what what you think is going to be coming, but maybe from a broader industry perspective on trends within e commerce um, and what you think are the big areas the brands not need to be thinking about. Um, or need to be investing in, uh, whether it's from their marketing side, whether it's from from their back ends um, or their you know their supply side, whatever it might be. Like some of the key ones, I put you on the spot here. That's yeah, a, no, you can I, draw I, a piece I, of string I, and say different whatever. <laughs> on the marketing side, I think people just need to get back to the basics, right? I think like yeah. you're in this zero percent interest environment, you could like almost do anything and grow revenue. And like, <laughs> yeah. a lot of people just got really lucky because that's all they'd been in their careers. So they'd never had to like really do anything other than just like throw money at things and it kind of worked. Right. And I think now when it comes to marketing, you need to get back to the basics of like unit economics and be like, okay, let's really look at our ad sets. Let's really look at all of our different marketing channels and like what's really profitable, what's really working. Um, but I think that you need to mix it with a bit of data, but also common sense, right? Because I think some people get too data driven. So what they'll do is they'll be like, oh, the ROAS or the, you know, they're looking at these like 30 day windows and it's like, but that's only telling you the story of what that platform is telling you. And that's good, right? Like take the data and, and analyze it, but always realize that there's a bias to that data because not everyone buys within 30 days. Like I have a brand that I buy from a lot now and I feel like I'd saw their ads for like five years. Like some people don't, sometimes you could see an, like, so there's a, there's an additional effect that comes with some of the marketing that you need to think about in terms of like just building your brand. So I think some of the brand building 
from the marketing perspective is honestly just common sense. Where do people spend their time? It's social media, it's video, it's YouTube, it's word of mouth. You know, it's obviously there's a test, 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 I imagine too in that space. Yeah. And I think you just need to build a smart kind of like repeatable mechanism to launch consistent content relatively quickly and relatively affordable like this right now. Like this is the perfect example. It's not very expensive to launch a podcast. Like people don't realize like you don't need to spend millions of dollars to launch a podcast. We record some content and edit it. And you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> you've just got to have the, you just got to have the talented speakers like um, these two co-hosts having a chat with each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So come up with a kind of a repeatable model to launch content and, and, and it's going to be different, you know, for product business. I don't know. Maybe it's getting a different, you know, micro influencer every week that yeah. you send them a free product and do a quick little story and, and make it interesting. Right. Like I don't care what it is, but it's that ongoing kind of, like repeatable it's the it, honestly it's the gary vaynerchuk model like take the thing you're just doing a lot of it's a lot of repetition but you got to make it creative so it's not too boring um and then just get back to the basics right you know email automation just really auditing all your channels and making sure they're they're thoughtful and profitable and cutting out the waste there's just so much wasteful spending right a lot of times we go into google ads and it's like the first thing we do isn't increase spending it's actually cut spending so when we look at Google ads and Facebook, usually what we do is we cut spending until we've optimized it and the the return seems good and then it grows, right? Because usually there's just so much bloat and waste because people are just going in, doing too much stuff and not cutting back. And then on the flip side, you can kind of apply that same principle on the logistics and the operations in the back office. Um, I really think it's important to like talk to people like myself and get a kind of holistic consultant perspective, very little people put effort into like, okay, what happens after the order is placed? Like what are the email follow-ups? What are the shipping notifications? How expensive is it for me to get the order out the door? What's the cost of the manual labor? So literally like put it in the package and like, what's the return rate? I mean, we had a customer that we talked to, not customer, sorry, prospect. The return rate was like 25% and they did huge volume. So imagine if you got that return rate down to like 15%, you're talking like literally millions of dollars. Like it would have made, and they didn't, unfortunately didn't go with us, which I think was stupid, but if they had paid us 300 grand, I'm just making that number up, to get the return rate down, like that would have literally made money for them. That's how like, you know. I think that, um, I, I actually agree with you. I think I think e-commerce brands got a huge, uh, have missed a trick or are slowly learning that uh, people, People want a personal touch in in and around how they're thinking about post post delivery and post product follow up. And I, like I just think of a local brand that I used here in Ireland not long ago to buy a wetsuit, and literally, like a wetsuit. How many? Like, what's the lifetime value of me as a wetsuit customer? I would hope that I never have to buy another yeah, wetsuit exactly. again, unless I get you know, unless I put on four hundred pounds or whatever it might be. <laughs> but the brilliance of having a handwritten note within their order. Now, obviously, this is working at a different market scale, but to go, hey, by the way, we have lots of people that mess their sizing up with wetsuit. Here's a printout of something that you should be looking at. And if it's wrong, give us a shout. We'll send you another one, et cetera. Like just a brilliant touch from a business going like that. And it's it's those little simple things. And you go, okay, well, how do, how do they scale that? And there's so many startups that are looking at that space at the moment on, on being able to do that at a scale up where you're putting in something. And that's just a packaging example, but you know, but I think brands that because like, now you remember those guys and they can upsell. Exactly. You know, like, Hey, we have this new gadget, right? I don't know. Maybe it's the, whatever 
it doesn't have to be the wetsuit, right? They can start selling all the little yeah, things, the hood or whatever, all yeah. the things that come with the same things you're doing, right? I have friends that do like spear fishing. I don't know that's an extreme example, but theoretically, <laughs> they can sell like spear fishes or spear fishing equipment to go with the wetsuit, right? Like, you know, so yeah. and, and all based off a good experience that's not a measurable marketing experience for them, exactly. other than the fact that you hope that I it think hits. that's the yeah. problem is that that we are in this world where the data and the measurement is good and that's important. One, I find people don't even know how it works, so they have it wrong. So they don't even know if the data they're looking at is right or wrong. We sometimes go in and say, you're track, you've double, we've seen double tracking. So a lot of times we'll go in and we'll see that whatever their data says, it's actually double tracking it. So it looks like the numbers are twice as good. So half the time people don't even know if the data is right or wrong, but then they, they, they rely on the data too religiously. Like they lose all common sense, right? Like, there's a there's a common sense element to like business that people have just kind of lost with this like data driven world, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a huge takeaway from from this chat today is that coming back to that that it, like a lot of it is common sense and there's a reason that humans have common sense, right? Like it's 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 there for a reason. So um, being able to tie that with with modern technology and, and, and a digital first world and then being able to use that with your data and understand things like incrementality and your P&L at the end of the day to make sure that you're literally lifting orders and you're selling more stuff, um, being able to put that back. I kind of hate some of these buzzwords because I think what we do is we like almost over, well, sometimes we try and simplify with the buzzwords, a complex compound. We're just like confusing people, I feel like. And sometimes it's like, we need to use better analogies in some of these things because, you know, at the end of the day, I think people kind of get confused when really it's like some of these concepts, they're not rocket science, right? We're not building SpaceX. Isaiah, um, so good to have you on the podcast today, experts in the room. Um, you're definitely an expert when it comes to e-commerce. I have to say to everyone, if you're not following him on uh, LinkedIn, do yourself a favor and do follow it. Uh, it's worth its weight of gold, uh, uh, worth its weight of admission. Um, <laughs> what's to say? It's worth your comments on LinkedIn and the, some of the some of the banter that gets thrown around them, as we would as we would say in Ireland and Australia. Is, is worth the admission price to see some of the topics that you bring up and some of the um, responses you get in LinkedIn, but um, covered a huge range of topics today and really appreciate you coming on on the call. And obviously, if you're looking for the best agency to be working with, if you're e-commerce based, you need to be talking to the guys at Trellis, that's for sure. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on and happy to come back. And, you know, like I said, I feel like there's always more to talk about, right? We could go deep into yeah. so many topics and... Uh, yeah, I, it's funny you mentioned that on LinkedIn. I'm trying to get better at social media and like I'm trying to figure out what to post, but like sometimes you got to post things that, you know, people don't like. So I'm trying to figure out like what's the, the balance there not, you know, not get canceled or piss off too many people, especially if they're like a partner yeah. or, you know, we have a lot of different partners and some of our partners have competing different the problems, right? So it's like hard to please everyone at the same time. So I think you just have to accept that someone's not going to be happy with it. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoy following it. It's great. Um, but yeah, thanks, thanks for coming on board and we will chat soon. Thank you.